Day 12. Saturday. The darkest day. As it does every week, Saturday came to Moscow before Washington, so we will start there. Khrushchev sat in his office, being lectured by Defense Minister Malinovsky, who whacked at a map of the Soviet Union with a pointing stick. He advised Khrushchev to hold fast, to which Khrushchev asked, Can you assure me that holding fast will not result in the death of 500 million human beings? Khrushchev recalled in his memoir that they looked at him as if he had gone out of his mind or was a traitor. The generals saw that the biggest tragedy was not that the Soviet Union would be devastated and everything lost, but that the Chinese or the Albanians would accuse them of appeasement or weakness. Khrushchev later wrote, What good would it have done me in the last hour of my life to know that Though our great nation and the United States were in complete ruin, the national honor of the Soviet Union was intact. When the XCOM eventually read what Khrushchev was about to send, there were suggestions that there might have been a military coup overnight, that Khrushchev might have been dead and his successor had completely changed the rules. What Kennedy and the committee didn't know is what we can see with hindsight today. It hadn't happened, but it could have. Melor Sturura of Izvestia, the Soviet newspaper of record, was summoned to the Kremlin to receive a new letter to be transmitted to the United States. Sturura saw Khrushchev arguing furiously with the generals. He remembered that Khrushchev was, in his words, the most calm, the most rational man in the room. This was the soup of anxiety, paranoia, and anger that Khrushchev had been operating in, and somehow, in spite of it, had managed to send the private letter a Friday night. But Saturday was another day, and the generals demanded a new letter and a new set of rules. In Washington... Saturday morning at 10 a.m., the XCOM met with an atmosphere of considerable disquiet. Along with every other potential point of stress and uncertainty, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI had reported that the Soviet diplomats in New York were preparing to burn their sensitive documents in anticipation of the war. This may have been a bit of performance for the sake of the Americans watching the embassy and consulates, but as a public service announcement from your friends at the Cold War vault, if you ever see smoke billowing out of the chimney of a Russian embassy, it likely isn't a cozy fire. Take the opportunity to pack and get out of town. What we are now facing is Saturday, the 27th of October, what Robert Kennedy called the most difficult 24 hours of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Whether it was the most difficult, I don't know. It was certainly the most complicated, with key events happening every half hour or more. 
what it does tell us about the crisis, and what is so rarely pointed out, is that the earlier plans of the UN Secretary General and Khrushchev himself to have a cooling-off period never happened. The crisis ramped up to the tensest moments and then was solved. As Dean Rusk wrote, it ended as quickly as it began. This is the story of that exhausting, dangerous day. At 9 a.m., Radio Moscow began to broadcast the new letter from Khrushchev. We'll call this the Saturday letter. This was one of several channels used to try to make sure that Kennedy saw the message as early as possible. Khrushchev had been as frustrated as Kennedy at the slow back and forth of the transatlantic interchange of letters. Another channel, as mentioned before, was the copy of the letter that had gone to Izvestia through Melor Sturua. And, of course, a third copy was sent through diplomatic channels, landing on the State Department teletypes long after Radio Moscow had begun to read it. The important thing to know about this new letter is that it was very hawkish. It was stern. It had none of the personal sentiment, the maudlin pleading of the letter edited in Khrushchev's private violet ink of the night before. And it changed the goalposts. The Friday letter had asked only for a promise not to invade Cuba. The Saturday letter asked for this promise and the removal of missiles from Turkey. At 10 a.m., as had become usual, the XCOM met at the White House. Unbelievably, and I've used that word before because it is forehead-slappingly unbelievable, the Soviets didn't actually know the official extent of the U.S. quarantine line. Robert McNamara recommended that if the Soviet ship Grozny got much closer, it should be targeted for boarding and inspection. Kennedy suggested that the Secretary General of the United Nations, U Thant, deliver a message to the Soviet delegation in New York explaining exactly where the quarantine line had been drawn. This would allow for another opportunity to delay what seemed an inevitable naval confrontation with the Soviet Union. As if things couldn't possibly take another, even more unexpected and dangerous turn, during the XCOM meeting, a U-2 plane that had launched from Alaska made a mistake. A big one. The story of the U-2 aircraft is an extraordinary one, but what is important to know at this moment in history is that when it came to navigation, it was as low-tech as a lobster boat on the open ocean. The pilots used the stars. In this instance, the pilot of the U-2 had made a navigational error and suddenly found himself over Siberia, flying over the Soviet Union. Pilots of the U-2s were very sharp aviators, but they were also independent thinkers, which made a mess of things during the Gary Powers incident, true, but this time that trait may have saved the situation from spiraling into war. The pilot radioed in the clear 
speaking slowly and in well-enunciated vernacular English. He said, Hey, I think I'm lost. I may be over Siberia. For Christ's sake, tell me how to get home. Though the Soviets scrambled their fighters, commanders listened to the radio chatter and decided that the pilot had actually gotten lost and was not on a pre-attack reconnaissance mission. It didn't have to be that way, of course, but it was. The MiGs didn't shoot him down. But if they had, or if they had gotten too close to the approaching American escort, there was another element that could have come into play. And a disastrous one. An F-102 Delta Dagger Interceptor was dispatched to protect the U-2 and bring it home. Aboard the aircraft were two AIM-26 nuclear-tipped missiles. Use of these air-to-air missiles was very much at the discretion of the pilot. Another dangerous confrontation averted because of cooler heads on both sides. When Robert McNamara heard that a U-2 had entered Soviet airspace, According to one account, he turned absolutely white and yelled hysterically, shouting, This means war with the Soviet Union. The president said that he had actually earlier ordered that all of those flights be canceled. He laughed, gallows humor, surely, at the absurdity of the situation. He said, There's always some son of a bitch who doesn't get the message. Is it even possible to believe that on the darkest, most dangerous day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a U.S. spy plane penetrated Soviet airspace? Well, of course it is. Every day tested everyone involved in every way. But it wasn't over, and the worst was yet to come. The Joint Chiefs, back to their old refrain, wanted to stretch their military muscles, They begged and pleaded for a massive airstrike and an invasion of the island, beginning early on the morning of Monday the 29th, a day and a half away. Amidst the arguments, word came that there had been another U-2 incident, this one fatal. Around noon, a U-2 reconnaissance flight over Cuba had been shot down, and the pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson, had been killed. The reaction by the XCOM was quick and the opinion decisive. The group had been informed that all of the surface-to-air missile sites in Cuba were under the control of the Soviet Union. This meant that the decision to down the U-2 was a Soviet decision and had come from the Kremlin. The president said, This is much of an escalation by them, isn't it? McNamara agreed. Yes, exactly. Except that Kennedy, McNamara, and the XCOM were wrong. The U-2 shootdown was not an intentional escalation and had not been ordered by anyone in Moscow. Actually, there had been an oversight in that there was no direct prohibition on Soviet commanders in Cuba when it came to using the SAM sites. When two deputy commanders in Cuba saw the U-2, 
They tried, but failed, to reach their superior. They took matters into their own hands and launched. Anderson's U-2 was brought down on the first attempt. In Moscow, Khrushchev was furious. He called the shoot-down a big mistake, and along with the first U-2 incident over Siberia that morning, began to see control of the situation slipping out of his hands. The longer the crisis went on, the more chance there was for some moment of misjudgment or human error to spark a war that neither Khrushchev nor Kennedy wanted. Not to leave Fidel Castro out of the history, it should be said that he welcomed a war. A rumor persisted for decades that he had personally pulled the trigger at the SAM site that brought down the U-2. Dean Rusk recalled that rumor in his memoir. But Fidel himself admitted at a Havana conference on the crisis that he had, in fact, not had that privilege, as he called it. Still, he was hot-headed and short-sighted and continued to urge Khrushchev to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on the imperialists before they could invade the island. Khrushchev continued to decline. Though Castro did not have control of the SAM sites, he did have a standing army with anti-aircraft guns and small arms. At 3.41 p.m., six F-8U-1P low-level recon planes took off for Cuba. Two were forced back because of mechanical problems, and the remaining four came under fire from Cuban troops. One was struck by a 37mm anti-aircraft shell, but was able to make it back to base. All of this, as the pressure to attack the SAM site that had brought down Anderson's U-2, was ramping up, especially as the XCOM had already discussed and decided on that very scenario on Tuesday. The XCOM was in almost unanimous agreement that the SAM sites would have to be attacked by massive aerial bombardment the next morning, Sunday. It was Kennedy that pulled everyone back from the brink. He said to the XCOM, It isn't the first step that concerns me. It's both sides escalating to the fourth and fifth step, and we don't want to go to the sixth because there's no one around to do so. We must remind ourselves we are embarking on a very hazardous course. In the darkest hours of the crisis, as accidents abounded and events seemed to be spiraling out of the control of the leadership, Kennedy emphasized a careful understanding of every step. What would the Soviet responses be, and what would the implications be for the United States? Kennedy voiced his concern that the decisions made by him, informed by the XCOM, could close and lock doors not only for the NATO states, but for people and governments around the world. Robert Kennedy later wrote that his brother urged them to be aware of this responsibility at all times, because the President of the United States was deciding for the U.S., the Soviet Union, and for all mankind. The president said, we won't attack tomorrow. We will try again. When the Joint Chiefs heard of this, they were beyond irate. They would let the president know as much the next day. 
What came in the frantic negotiations of Saturday night is now, of course, the stuff of missile crisis legend. The simple essence of the situation was that the Kremlin had sent two letters, one on Friday from Khrushchev personally, and one on Saturday from a committee. The Friday letter had points that were acceptable. The Saturday letter was largely unacceptable. The Friday letter required the United States to promise not to invade Cuba, but on Saturday, the request had expanded to removing the Jupiter missiles from Turkey. Those missiles were obsolete, and they had been part of the calculus from the beginning. But Kennedy refused to be blackmailed into removing the Jupiter missiles by the Soviets' original recklessness in Cuba, even though the Jupiters were already slated for removal. The solution to this situation has been variously attributed to Robert Kennedy, Tommy Thompson, George Ball, and McGeorge Bundy. No doubt they each had something to do with it. The solution is a version of something called the Trollope ploy, from a novel by Victorian British writer Anthony Trollope. This is a negotiating technique that intentionally misunderstands a proposal and then accepts the misunderstood terms. In practice, this meant that the president agreed to accept Khrushchev's letter of Friday night and simply ignore the letter of Saturday morning. And of course, anyone familiar with the outcome of the crisis will know that the Trollope ploy worked. Kennedy was fairly certain that it would not work. But the Soviet specialist, Llewellyn Tommy Thompson, felt otherwise. He famously told the president to his face that he was frankly wrong. Thompson suggested that all Khrushchev really needed was a way to say that he had saved Cuba from an invasion. The terms of the Friday letter would give him that. Kennedy agreed, and a response to Khrushchev was drawn up by Robert Kennedy and Ted Sorensen. After the XCOM meeting, a smaller group of advisors met in the Oval Office and agreed that an oral message should be passed to the Kremlin through Ambassador Dobrynin. In that message was the promise that if the missiles were not withdrawn from Cuba, there would be an invasion, but if they were to be removed, then the U.S. would give a public pledge that it would not invade Cuba. Dean Rusk added a sweetener. While it was understood that the missiles in Turkey couldn't be withdrawn under duress, Dobrynin should pass along the message that once the missile crisis had been resolved, the missiles in Turkey would be removed soon after. This arrangement was so sensitive and so secret that only those in the Oval Office were aware of it. Even the rest of the XCOM was kept in the dark. A formal letter was prepared to send a Khrushchev acknowledging the Friday letter. At 7.45 that evening, Ambassador de Brennan met Robert Kennedy at the Justice Department. Kennedy transmitted the somewhat unsubtle message. He said, we need a commitment by tomorrow that the missiles will be removed, and Khrushchev should understand 
that if you don't remove the missiles, then the U.S. will remove them. This is Kennedy's recollection, and in the years after, Anatoly Dobrynin suggested that his tone might have been slightly more conciliatory. With war now all but certain, Kennedy instructed Robert McNamara to bring 24 Air Force Reserve units to active duty, an immediate mobilization of 14,200 personnel. Robert Kennedy remembered that the mood in the White House was grim. He wrote, We had not abandoned hope, but what hope there was now rested with Khrushchev's revising his course within the next few hours. It was a hope, not an expectation. The expectation was a military confrontation by Tuesday and possibly Monday. At 8.05, the official letter from Kennedy to Khrushchev was dispatched. The letter was also released to the press to avoid miscommunication or delays. In the interlude between this and the 9 p.m. meeting of the XCOM, the Kennedy brothers sat in the president's study and discussed a few more philosophical issues. The president spoke of Major Anderson, the deceased U-2 pilot, and suggested that the Russians didn't want war any more than the United States did. And yet, if they went on as they had in the last several days, the struggle, which no one wishes and which will accomplish nothing, will engulf and destroy humanity. And yet, they went on. At 9 p.m., the XCOM began to review military options for Sunday morning. The airstrike loomed large, along with the extension of the quarantine to petroleum products to choke the island. Robert McNamara reiterated the two most essential pieces of the plan. He said to Robert Kennedy, The United States had better be damned sure that we have two things ready. A government for Cuba, because we're going to need one. And secondly, plans for how to respond to the Soviet Union in Europe, because sure as hell they're going to do something there. An unidentified voice on the tape of that conversation can be heard suggesting that they make Bobby the mayor of Havana. Nearly midnight, the group adjourned. The president arranged to review the plans for an airstrike in the morning. He said, now it can go either way. He went to the White House Theater and watched Roman Holiday, starring one of his favorite actresses, Audrey Hepburn. In Havana, Fidel Castro was certain that a military strike was coming within hours. The Soviet ambassador to Cuba, Alexander Alexeyev, met the feverishly agitated Cuban dictator on Saturday night when he demanded to be taken into the fallout shelter in the basement of the Soviet embassy. From there, he wrote a letter to Khrushchev urging a preemptive nuclear strike on the United States. Though Alexeyev later denied that was the intention of the letter, it was certainly the way that Khrushchev read it, and, in this case, that was all that mattered. 
Feeling that control of the Cuban dictator was slipping away on an island armed with nuclear weapons, he was also confronted with the fear that Kennedy was under the control of the generals and might even be removed in a coup by the end of the weekend. The downing of the U-2 over Cuba that day only added to his fear that the world was stumbling toward war. A war that would leave hundreds of millions dead. It had become too much for him. There seemed too many ways for everything to go wrong. From his dacha outside Moscow, he responded to Kennedy's letter. I have received your message of October 27. I express my satisfaction and thank you for the sense of proportion you have displayed and for recognition of the responsibility you now bear for the preservation of the peace of the world. I very well understand your anxiety and that of the American people about the fact that the weapons you describe as offensive are formidable weapons indeed. In order to eliminate as rapidly as possible the conflict which endangers the cause of peace, the Soviet government, in addition to previously issued instructions to cease further work on weapons construction sites, has issued a new order to dismantle the weapons which you describe as offensive and to crate and return them to the Soviet Union. The letter was handed off to a messenger and he was ordered to take it to Radio Moscow. There was no time to wait for diplomatic cables. The text of Khrushchev's letter came through at 9 a.m. Sunday morning in Washington. It effectively ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis ended as suddenly as it had begun. The missiles had yet to be dismantled, and other promises had yet to be kept, but it was enough to draw a line under the most dangerous two weeks of the Cold War. Recollections of that Sunday morning are reflective, if a bit sentimental. McGeorge Bundy remembered, quote, It was a beautiful morning, and it had suddenly become many times more beautiful, and I'm sure the President felt the same way from the feeling between us as we talked about it. We all felt that the world had changed for the better. Don Wilson of the USIA remembered that he felt like laughing or yelling or dancing. At the State Department, Tommy Thompson watched a baseball game on an old television with colleagues. McGeorge Bundy briefed the president in the family quarters as he was preparing for Sunday Mass. Kennedy said, I feel like a new man. Do you realize that we had an airstrike all arranged for Tuesday? Thank God it's over. Robert Kennedy got a call from Dean Rusk at the Washington Armory, where he had taken his daughters to the horse show. He left immediately for the White House. Robert talked to his brother for a long time. At the end of their time together, the president recalled that Abraham Lincoln had gone to Ford's theater and been assassinated five days after the greatest victory of his presidency, the end of the Civil War. He said, this is the night that I should go to the theater. Robert responded, if you go, I want to go with you. And while heartfelt and poetic, 
That was really just a reference to not wanting to be around if Johnson became president. Robert had watched him throughout the crisis and been generally disgusted by his inability to make any contribution at all. These are the things that happened. But our story isn't over yet. We will turn our attention to what might have happened on the conclusion of the Cuban Missile Crisis, next time on the Cold War Vault.